Bibles. If you don't have your own Bible, ushers have Bibles available. If you would just raise your hand, they'll bring a Bible that you can use throughout our service this morning. Let's all stand in respect to the reading of God's Word, reading through Matthew chapter 9. I'll read aloud, ask you to just follow along with me as I read. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Behold, some of the scribes said to them, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and the worst tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rode and rode him with his disciples. A woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him, touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. 
But when the crowd had been put, put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him and said to him, and, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? He said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. May God give us understanding as we read this scripture. We'll be preaching through this as we continue in our series in Matthew. Let's take a moment now as you remain standing with me to bow for a word of prayer. After prayer, our choir will come with special music. And then after the choir, I'll come to speak God's word on this text this morning. So let's bow with me. Remain standing with me. Bow your heads. Close your eyes in a moment of prayer. We thank you, Father, for allowing us to be here today, for taking us safely through this week. We thank you for opening the doors of this church so that people can meet, your, your word can be given, can be taught, be preached, and lived as we praise you. We thank you for this morning's singspiration, a time of worship and praise and song. Thank you for all who were here for that. Now we pray, Lord, as we look at your word, you'd open our understanding so we understand what you are saying and that we might, your Holy Spirit might lead us and prompt us and challenge us, encourage us and motivate us to follow Christ, to live for him, to understand what he has done, who he is. to receive forgiveness for our sins, to be connected with him, and to be eternally committed to him, thankful for him. So bless all who hear your word, Lord. Challenge our hearts today through your word. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated.
Good to have you here this morning. We had a number who joined us for Singspiration, and it's a good thing. We had one family who had to leave, uh, Heidi's family, her parents, on their way back now to their home in Indiana. So we have families leaving, and we have families coming and joining us. So it's good to see uh, Dave and Emily and their family here. Unfortunate that power is out, but it's good that you took advantage of that to come and be with us. We're glad to have you, and each one of you. Just good to, to see you here this morning, some of our guests and those who haven't been here before. We welcome you to Sweet Communion. Our series, the sermon series, has been going through Matthew, and now we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 9. So let's pick up there and see what God's Word has to say. We've seen a pattern in Matthew is that um, he shows what Jesus uh, teaches, and then he shows what Jesus does. And, and the, uh, the work that Jesus does, the miracles that he do, does, proves that he is who he says he is. And we're in that section where he is showing over and over his authority, who he is, he, his authority over disease, his authority over the natural world, his authority over the spiritual world. He is a Savior that has authority over all. And today in the first interaction we see with him, he's showing he has the authority to forgive sins. He intentionally brings that out. And the Pharisees have a problem with that. It says here, first of all, we see several interactions. We're going to go through them one, one at a time. But it's something that we're going to see in each interaction, and I want you to, to see it. I don't want to keep it a secret the whole time. I want you to see it, and here it is. We're going to see a contrast of faith, a contrast of faith in each of these interactions that Jesus has. So let's take a look at the first one. It's in, uh, chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. Jesus goes back to his hometown. If you remember through our study in Mark, we, we saw that Jesus had headquarters, his, his, his ministry, his, his home was there in Capernaum, and that's where he had come back to. And so what's happening is, is they, these people are coming from all over to his very home. You'll see in Mark that they, they cut a hole in the roof. Uh, um, I had visitors. We, we hosted a, a, my son's birthday party yesterday. I would have been upset if somebody come in and cut a hole in my roof to get in my house. But Jesus wasn't upset. He was welcoming people. And, and what it did, it showed their great faith that these men brought their friend. They took great uh, pains to bring their friend to Jesus. Why? Because they knew Jesus had the answer for him. And so the great faith of these people, is, these men, is to come and take this friend of theirs who had this ailment and bring him to Jesus. Notice Jesus' reaction. It says uh, uh, in verse 2, when Jesus saw their faith, when Jesus saw their faith, how do you see somebody's faith? I'll tell you how you see it, because real faith always shows in real action. Faith without works, James said, is dead. In other words, without action, it's just talk. It's all in it is gibberish. 
But real faith always shows real action. And Jesus saw their action, which indicated their faith. Think about it. What actions do you have in your life that indicate your faith? I didn't say what you're saying and what you're talking. What actions do you show that indicate your real faith? So we see, I said, in every encounter, we see a contrast faith. We see the genuine faith that's shown by genuine action, real action. And then we see the contrast to that. It says in verse 3, Behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. They're looking at the same man. They're looking at the same individual. The scribes say this man is blaspheming. Now, we understand, in fact, Jesus does this for the impact of it. He's saying to this person, instead of you be healed, he says, your sins are forgiven you. Now, that does a couple things. First, it ties sin to disease and sickness. We don't like that tie all the time. Because we, we don't understand it. We say, well, you, Pastor, are you saying that I'm sick because I'm sinful? Not necessarily your specific sin, but you live in a sinful world, and sickness is bound to happen. In this, sin, in this sinful world, there are many effects and impacts of sin. But Jesus said to this man, your sins are forgiven you. And that was going to allow him to be healed. Now, the scribes didn't like that because they knew, and they knew correctly, only God can forgive sin. Only God can forgive a sin. Why? It's because sin is ultimately pointed at him. One of the things we don't understand in our culture today is we got, a, we, we got an authority problem. Parents no longer want to parent with authority. They want to be friends, and they want to come to consensus for their child's behavior. As if an authority is an evil thing to be shunned. We have an authority problem because we have a God problem. We don't like the fact that God is authority over us and commands us to do what he says. We don't even like to call people we work with or work for our boss. He ain't my boss. He's, we give him some other fancy name because we, we, we have a struggle with authority. That's in a struggle with God. The Pharisees and the scribes rightly knew that only God could forgive sin. The point Jesus was making is, yeah, right. So if I'm forgiving sin, what does that make me? Exactly. He says, I have the very power and authority that God has because I'm his very son, and I share the attribute of deity with him. That was too much for them to understand. But they understood anybody who claimed to be God would be blasphemy, except, there's always exception to everything, right? If it's true. You see, if I claim to be God, I would blaspheme. I'm not, and you know it. But when Jesus claimed to be God, he was simply speaking the truth. And he did it for a point of emphasis. So Jesus said to him, hey, tell me what's harder to do, to forgive somebody's sin or to heal them? In other words, he said, can you do any of that? No, you can't because you're not who I am. 
and I'm going to show you who I am, and I'll say to this man, your sins are forgiven. Notice the reaction. It says, this man got up, <laughs> he rose, and he went home. In other words, he was healed immediately. He had been let down by ropes. He could not even walk into the home. He had to be carried by four men. The other gospels kind of fill in all those features and all those facts. And he leaves under his own power that has been restored by the mighty hand of God. Now, why is that a great thing? Because human beings can't do that. But why is it not, not to be uh, 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 unexpected? Because God speaks things into existence. In the beginning, God said, and there was. He created all things. So the Son of God is able to speak and to restore health as he did with this man. Here's the other strange reaction. It says in verse 8, when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. Now, why be afraid? Well, I think Matthew teaches us a lot about fear. In chapter 6, he talked about anxieties. We're anxious for the things in life that we need. And, and, and in chapter 8, we talk, he talked about uh, uh, um, when, when the disciples were on the sea and, and, and the waves started to, to, to um, uh, the storm rose up and the waves started to, to splash and make trouble for them. He says, why do you fear, O you of little faith? So he linked that fear and faith. And, and, and that's important for us to understand, it, understand that fear is actually a lack of faith. But if you're like me from a child, you were taught, now wait a minute, am, am, aren't I supposed to fear God? Exactly, you are in chapter 10. Next we'll see that. That fear is actually a, a realization of a power greater than you. And a right response to that. And so I think they're fearing because they see something that they have never seen before. And they know this is a power that is greater than them. But it also says they glorify God. <laughs> we are to show the fear of God. It's a sense that we know that he is the ultimate power. We recognize him for who he is. It's something about uh, seeing God's power. It's just a matter of perspective, isn't it? Because if you're his child, then that's good power. If you're attacking his child, that's something else. And you, you do, do well to fear. Let's look at the next encounter Jesus has. It's with Matthew, the writer of this gospel. Who was Matthew? He was a tax collector. What were tax collectors in those days? They were individuals that the Roman government had assigned. They were Jews. You there were Jews because Jews had to kind of like the inside track with their own people. And they assigned them to collect the taxes for the government. Well, the Jews who did that oftentimes uh, kept more than their share. They lived well because they were tax collectors. They took in the taxes from the people, but they kept for themselves. And people despised them. The common Jew hated, looked at with disgust, the tax collectors. And so you'll see this term linked with them, tax collectors and sinners. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's not a good crowd to be in. That's where Matthew was. He was with the tax collectors and sinners. But something happens, and it's stated very simply here. It says, as Jesus passed on from there, you notice that through this chapter, each thing is linked. This is just a series of events that Jesus is walking through, and he wants us to understand something from it. He says, as Jesus passed from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. So Matthew was presently working his job, doing his trade when Jesus called him. Remember the chapter before that Jesus talked about what it meant to follow him? He said, don't, don't, don't tell me that uh, um, I'll follow you after I take care of all these things first. Make Jesus your first priority. Give no excuse to delay following Jesus right now. Look at Matthew. Here's another example, a contrast in faith. It says, as he was working, his, in other words, he got up that morning, looked at his agenda, went to work, was doing his job. He was a, he, he, he was a filthy, no good tax collector in the morning. In the afternoon, he met Jesus. I don't know what time of day, but Jesus passed by, and Jesus says this, follow me. We take those words lightly. Jesus says, follow me. And what else? He rose and followed him. It doesn't mean that Jesus was headed to the corner store. Hey, Matthew, you want a drink? Come on with me. We'll go grab, grab something to drink at the corner store. And he followed him. And then after that, he went back to his own business. No, he genuinely, he left being a tax collector. He said, see ya, I, I'm not doing that no more. Jesus now became his main priority. He followed Jesus. How do you know that? Well, it tells us later in there that Jesus went to, we don't get all the specifics in Matthew, but when we see the other Gospels about this same incident, we understand this. Jesus went to Matthew's house to eat. In other words, see, <laughs> you can tell how serious Matthew was. He says, I'm, I'm giving up my job as tax collector, and, and you can follow me home. You're welcome in my house. And not only was Jesus there, but a whole lot of other tax collectors was there. Probably because nobody else wanted to deal with them. Nobody else liked them. But it was something about Jesus that attracted them. So Jesus and his disciples and Matthew and all his old friends were all together in a house and eating and listening to Jesus. It tells us several things we can learn that Jesus dealt with the everyday common person. And he talked to them. There's nobody that was off limits to him. He would speak. He would, he would, he would give the gospel out. And he, we would be amazed, as people that day were amazed, at who he was calling to himself. He called to one of his own disciples, a man who had ripped people off as a living, tax collector, but now was going to wholeheartedly follow Jesus. And he did. Well, what's the contrast of faith here? Well, as they get to his home and they're eating and Jesus and his disciples, it says, the Pharisees saw this and they said to Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They didn't like that. It's a contrast of faith. What does Jesus say to them? He says, people who well don't need a doctor. The people that's sick are the ones 
that need a doctor. Now, you agree, Pharisee, that these people are sick. You call them sinners. They're the ones who I came to minister to. You know what Jesus is saying? If you ain't sick, you don't need me. But you do. But you do. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees as well as everybody else. You see, the tax collectors recognized who they were. You can't be saved until you become a sinner first. <laughs> See, becoming a sinner is the easy part. Recognizing that you are a sinner that needs a savior is the, is the hard part. But it's the part that God does. He works this conviction in our hearts to recognize that I am nothing but a filthy sinner who totally deserves God's judgment, his condemnation. You and I must come to that point to be saved. You got to be a sinner first before you know you need a sin, you need a savior. Matthew knew he needed a savior. And Jesus called him and he responded right away. Matthew's friends were listening to this message that Jesus was speaking. The Pharisees, in contrast to that, they didn't want to have nothing to do with it. They ridiculed Jesus for getting his hands dirty for dealing with these outcasts, for associating with them, for eating with them, for letting them talk to him and ask him questions, for relating to them. They hated Jesus for that. And Jesus said, here's what you need to learn. Go learn this. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. There's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. It's an act of God, of his mercy. And he says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Christ is going to come again to call the righteous, but when he came to earth the first time, it was to gather sinners. Those who know they need a savior are the ones he's going to come to get when he returns. Look at the next interaction he has. This one's a little different. It says the disciples of John come to Jesus with a question about fasting. And they say, well, Jesus, how come we fast and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? Think about that for a moment. If you remember, the writer Matthew shows Jesus' ministry. It started in Matthew chapter 4. It started with Jesus fasting before he was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. He had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and he was tempted. So it wasn't that Jesus never fasted or didn't fast. It was that they didn't like that the disciples of Jesus weren't fasting, and the Pharisees and even John and his disciples met, Maybe they thought that they were holier because of this restriction that they had put on themselves. But Jesus simply makes a point. My disciples aren't fasting because the groom is with them now. When you're part of a wedding ceremony, you don't fast while the groom is with you. In fact, you do the opposite. You feast. There's a marriage feast. 
to celebrate. And they were in the presence of the groom, Jesus, and, and, and they were feasting with him. Jesus said, there's going to come a time when the groom will be taken away. Then they will fast. That time is actually now. When we are, we are apart from our Savior, we long for him to come and return. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly is what our thought is. It's like, Lord, we are in this sin-devastated uh, uh, world, and it's difficult, and we need your strength, and we need your power. We call on you, Father, to, to give us strength to do the job that you call us to do. And we look with great expectation of your coming, your return. You'll take us out, take us to be with you. This whole thing about the garment and the sewing and the wine skins and the wine bottle, it, it, it had always um, just bothered me as a child, but it's really a simple, a simple illustration that Jesus is giving. He's simply saying, um, make sure you match your behavior with the circumstances. Make an appropriate behavior for the circumstances, is what he's saying. He says, uh, if you match, um, um, uh, you try to mend a fabric with, with, with new fabric, it's, it's not appropriate, it's not fitting, it's not a match. If you try to match the, the wine with the wineskins and it's not a match, it's not going to work. He's saying, uh, make sure that what you do is appropriate for the situation. His disciples were doing what was appropriate. They were feasting with the groom, with Jesus. There was coming a time when feasting wouldn't be appropriate, and they would fast at that time. Do, it, do what's appropriate. You know, we have a problem with that. <laughs> we have a problem with that. Uh, uh, it would be inappropriate for me to dress today as if I was at the beach, swimming in the lake. Or even at construction, working on a job. I dress for worship today. Now, there's all different types of dress. I'm glad to see you appropriate. You don't have to dress just like me. But you, you dress appropriately for the setting. I was at a graduation this, year, this, uh, this week, and I was given a keynote address uh, for that. And I noticed that everybody there was dressed up. They don't always dress like that, but they recognize the setting. It was appropriate for them to dress at that setting. Now, if we were at a picnic and we were playing softball, it would not be appropriate to dress this way. Should have something that I can play ball in. Dress appropriately for the setting. That's what Jesus was saying. Y'all don't recognize the setting, he says. And that's why you out of sync. You're fasting when you shouldn't fast. You're eating when you shouldn't eat. The setting. The next interaction he has is twofold. There's a ruler that comes to him. And it's interesting what the ruler says. He says, my, my, my daughter is already dead. But if you come, <laughs> you can heal her. What great faith he has. The second person that comes to him is a woman. The other gospels tell us she had this issue for over 12 years, and she believed in her heart without saying a word to Jesus or anybody else. If she could just sneak up from behind and touch his clothing, she'd be healed. 
In the other Gospels, Jesus stopped everything. The ruler had already said it, that this, this was the situation. In fact, when you read the other Gospels, it's like this, this daughter was in grave danger, and Jesus would try to get there before she actually died, and he got a second message after Jesus delayed because of this woman that uh, too late, she had already died. So, like, no use. Jesus is, is on the way, and this woman, he, he stops everything, and he asks, who touched me? And the disciples are like, what do, you, what do you mean, who touched me? It's like being at State Fair, right, and, 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 and somebody touched me. Come on, it's, it's, there's 100,000 people here. Who do you expect to be touched? But Jesus knew something. He, had to, he, he wanted everybody else to understand what was going on. This woman confessed then that, yes, I touched. Because I knew that if I, I didn't have to come before you and, and waste your time or stall or anything, all I had to do was sneak up and touch you. I would be made whole. What great faith she had. She was not even of Jewish descent. And Jesus makes that point in the other Gospels. Here's a woman that's not even a Jew, but she believes that I don't even have to stop to heal her. She just has to touch me, and she'd be automatically healed. What great faith. Jesus stops the crowd and pinpoints that faith. He focuses on that great faith. So you have these two individuals with great faith. The man who says, well, even if my daughter's dead, I want you to come because you can still heal her. And Jesus goes there. Now, it says about the woman that she was healed immediately. Other gospels says she had run, she had gotten a first, you know, opinion, a second, a third, all kind of opinions of every expert around her day, and none of them could do anything for her. But the moment she touched Jesus, instantaneously she was healed. What great faith she shows. The object of her faith was Jesus. She had tried everything else. She knew now, here is the answer to my soul. Here's the answer to my life. It's Jesus. Jesus is still the answer today. This man walks to his home and Jesus comes there. They get to the home, and this girl is obviously dead. Jesus makes a comment. comment. In verse 24, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. Now, why does he say that? Well, I think he says that, first of all, for the response he got, and two, to make a note that Death is no more an obstacle for the Savior as sleep is for a mother working, waking up her nine-year-old in the morning. Get up. Time to wake up. Time to go to school. We got stuff to do. Shakes him. He wakes up, and he's fine. That's the same type of interaction that Jesus would have when a person is dead. That, that's how powerful he is. He just said, all right, I, I, I know you did, but wake up. That's what he does. But here's the response to the people who were mourning, who knew, in fact, that she was dead. 
It said they laughed. The other Gospels kind of give us the point. They laughed him to scorn. They totally berated him, ridiculed him for a senseless comment like that. How dare you come all the way in here, this family is bereaving, and you tell them this nonsense is what they did. But Jesus said, move aside. He pushed them all out. He took his disciples in and says he laid his hand on her and took her by the hand and the girl arose. You know, the Bible doesn't even go through these great uh, 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 moments where, you know, you could, you, if you made a movie out of this, you know, it'd be music, the lights would fade, we, we would see all this stuff, we would see the consternation on everybody's face. Jesus just, get up. In other words, it's not a big deal, but it is. It's not a big deal, but it is. Look at the contrast of faith of the, of the man with his daughter, the woman with her issue, and the crowd that ridicules Jesus for even coming there, thinking he could do something. What a contrast. The next interaction Jesus has is with two blind men. What a contrast we'll see in these next settings. He meets with two blind men, and it says they follow him. Now, can you picture that? <laughs> they know Jesus is coming because everywhere Jesus goes, there's this crowd following him. How did they hear about Jesus? I don't know. It's not told us, but they knew there's something different. There is hope for us with this Jesus man. So let's find him. It's kind of a picture of the first incident, isn't it? Where the man who, 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 had, who could not walk was brought to Jesus by his friends. Only here the friends aren't mentioned. Can't do it by yourself, can you? Sometimes God gives us help. He brings somebody in our life to direct us, to point us, to move us to Jesus. And sometimes, you know, in our own pride, we don't, we don't want that. I can do it myself, you know. When a six-year-old learns to tie his shoe, you know, hey, man, your shoe don't tie. I'll do it myself. I'll do it myself. I, I like that because it's growing up. It's taking on responsibility. But the human element of that is called pride and not needing or not accepting the help that we actually need. These blind men knew they need some help. I know Jesus is coming. Show me where he is. Just lead me to the way he's going. Come on, friend. You blind and come on with me. We just, we're we going to get there one way or another. And so they come to Jesus. They stumble upon Jesus. Jesus finally slows down, stays at the house for some time, and they catch up with him, it looks like. Have mercy on us. They say to Jesus, you can imagine Jesus, I don't know if he's in a crowded home or, or wherever he is, um, but he wants to pinpoint what they say and their true faith because he's drawing a contrast as well. He says to them, this, this is a weird question. 
do you believe that I'm able to do this? <laughs> now, if they didn't believe, they wouldn't be there, right? We said faith always shows itself in real action. That's why they're there. They wouldn't waste their time if they didn't believe Jesus could heal them. Jesus wanted to hear that expressed. In other words, Jesus wants us to acknowledge that we actually need him. Do you do that? Or do you think, you know, we, we like that, uh, uh, that, 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 that five-year-old who took the training wheels off and he's riding on his bike by himself. Do they even use training wheels now? Yeah, I know you do. They got scooters and all kind of stuff now. They hardly ever ride bikes. But if you learn how to ride a bike and you getting and pedaling all by yourself and then you feel like, I got this. I got this. Bye, mama. I don't need your help anymore. I got this. Jesus wants us to acknowledge that we actually need him. And you know what? If you've acknowledged that for salvation, you don't stop acknowledging that for your daily walk. You don't go, well, Jesus, thank you for, you know, um, get me started. I'm on my own now. I'm good. No, you need him to direct all of your life. Jesus wants us to acknowledge that. He said to these men, you believe I'm able to do this? Now, is he doubting himself? No. He wants to see and he wants that expressed to everybody around that I am trusting in you, Jesus. Jesus didn't save you so that you could secretly trust in him. Acknowledge to the people around you. You know the reason why when I'm in a public place and I eat that I actually pray out loud or, or for people to see, I bow my head so people can see that, listen, it's not that I don't have faith in McDonald's, my favorite restaurant, But it's that no matter what I eat and where I eat, I recognize it comes from God. It's a blessing from him, and I'm thankful to him for it. We show it. We show it. And that's what they did. They said to him, yes, Lord. <laughs> There's a lot in there. Yes, affirming, I agree, I acknowledge that, I submit, and you are Lord. It's not yes, dude. All right, man. You know, we in this in this culture where we, we think we have to relate to God and we, we want to be so much uh, uh, in tune or, or, or on level with him. We are never on level with Jesus. It's, it's, it's a great thing that he calls us friends, but he says this in John, you my friends, what? If you do whatever I command you. Don't forget who's really an authority here. I've given you the opportunity to, 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 to be close to me, yes. But don't ever forget who I am and that you absolutely need me. Yes, I am a friend to you, a friend indeed, but I'm unique in this friendship. There's no other friend like this. Yes, Lord, is their response. He touched their eyes. And their eyes were opened. You say, well, what the contrast? It's the next section. It says, not only did he heal 
two men who were blind. The next man he encounters is a man who couldn't speak. And again, this is tied to something. It was a demon-oppressed man who was mute, couldn't speak. In other words, he had a physical ailment as a result of spiritual oppression. I was reading a, a doctor who was studying trauma that had happened to children, and it was like an oh wow moment for this doctor to recognize that trauma and things that we experience can affect us physically. And I'm like, what do you do is read the Bible. Sin has a devastating impact on each and every part of our lives. So if you've, you've encountered sin, which we all have encountered some kind of sin, you encounter sin, it, it, it can affect you in so many other ways. Duh! That's what the Bible says. Sin is nasty. It's filthy. It's wicked. It's vile. It's destructive. So God needs to save us from it. Now we understand that when COVID comes around, but then we think we can control it, and we can keep it, and, and, and we can master this. Well, COVID was there to teach us, you ain't mastering nothing. But I want you to get it. That little mask you take or that little pill or, or stick in the arm ain't going to stop nothing. You've got no control. And that's what we didn't like through the COVID days. You've got no control. And what we didn't acknowledge is God has all control. I need to go on and obey him in all that I do. So we see this tie between sin and our physical effects or results that come from that. And when Jesus cast out this demon, wow, God was no more mute. See, the scientific world would never like that. Because they went into their education saying, we need an answer for everything that doesn't include God. God says to them, you fool. You absolute fool to think that you have knowledge of something and won't acknowledge the one who gave all knowledge. You fool to not understand who I am. So Jesus does that, and when he heals this man by casting out the demon, by the way, how do you cast out a demon? Let me give you an example. A wild, vicious dog is chained in the backyard, and you've got to come in. I had a guy in this week who came into my yard. He had to change my electric meter. And he asked permission to come in, which he should. And I gave him permission, and he walked in confidently and went to the electric meter and did his job and went back out. What if I had a dog? What if that dog was very vicious? So you got this, this idea of a wild and vicious dog, and you're coming into his backyard, his territory. You know, animals like that are very territorial. You have violated their first principle. Is this mine? 
And they understand that very clearly. And they show that they understand that by revealing to you <laughs> their canines. <laughs> and they say, I got these and I will use them. So if you're going to come into this territory, by the way, the Bible tells us that Satan is walking to and fro, seeking whom he may devour, which means he's on earth right now. He's not in hell. He's on earth. He's on earth, people. That means Milwaukee physically around our area. He's on earth. So how do you cast him out? If you're going to go in that yard with a vicious dog, you better have something. You better be prepared to take care of the dog. Now, you might think you could just talk sweet to him or maybe you give him a treat. Whatever you're going to do, but you better show some mastery over him to do that. So Jesus cast out a demon. And look what the, look what the Pharisees say. He cast out demon by the prince of the demons. Why would the prince of the demons want to destroy his own people? Jesus makes that point in another gospel. It's just total foolish. But I want you to see the contrast of faith. You have the mute, you have the blind who come totally trusting Jesus. In the case of the, the blind men, they, they, we know you can do this. And then you have people who say, well, yeah, you did that because you wanted them. What a contrast in faith. At the end of this, we see what Jesus says. I believe that last section here is a summary of his ministry, of, of what he had done so far. And it tells us that Jesus went, verse 35, Jesus went throughout all the, citizens, all the cities and villages, teaching, proclaiming the gospel, and healing. This is what he did. We can see uh, a similar summary statement. I think it kind of gives us an indication of, of a change in, in the structure of, of Matthew. In other words, he's, he, he's going he's to show you another side of, of what Jesus is doing. But we don't have to focus on that too much. It's just you see this statement and you see it. Um, in Matthew chapter 4, he does the same thing. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 to 25, it says he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. That was kind of at the start of his ministry there. He had just gone through the temptation. Uh, and so he began his ministry. And then in chapter 5, we see his Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, 6, and 7. And so this is like a summary statement of all that he's going to do. And then we see his, his teaching. Here again, again, we see a summary statement of all that he has done. And then Jesus says this. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. And so we see Jesus' assessment of the people that he ministered to. What did he see? What was his observation? The first observation is this. They were harassed and helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. 
Harass means under attack. And helpless means just that, no protection. And he gives us a scenario of sheep without a shepherd. They were like sheep who were under attack from wolves but had no shepherd to fight against the wolves that were coming. Perhaps in the wolves we see the true nature of the Pharisees, the scribes, and those who oppose Jesus. Well, as he goes on, we'll see their true nature because they don't just uh, uh, oppose him in theory or just debate. They actually want to kill him and actually perform that. They don't want Jesus having rule over these sheep. They want that rule. So they're under attack and without protection. Without the protection of the great shepherd himself. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I give my life for the sheep. And so after the observation, look what the response Jesus calls for his disciples to do. It says in verse 37, he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. He says the harvest is plentiful. The ground has been tilled. The seed has been planted. The gospel has been sown, and there will be a harvest soon. John the Baptist has, has laid the groundwork. Jesus himself has spread the gospel, has spoken the gospel, has given the seed of man's need for a Savior and the Savior who has come. He says he started that ministry, he said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's upon you. Why? Because the king is here. He saw the people needing this work, and then he says, pray Pray what? Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. He challenges his disciples to pray that God would respond and do something to bring in this harvest by sending laborers. I like the word laborers. They're going to do some hard work. It's not going to be easy, even though this harvest is, is there, it's ready. The laborers have to do. What, what do laborers do? They, they, they pick out the, the harvest that's ripe, and they, they put it, they store it, right? And in doing so, they pick out the stuff that's not good, and they destroy it. Jesus gives a, a parable about later on in Matthew, and he talks about the angels at the end of the age, and they're going to separate the good from the bad. The wheat, the true crop from the stuff that you can't eat, that's not good. There's some work to be done, but there are few workers available to do. By the way, if we get into chapter 10 next week, we'll see the answer to that prayer or the response to that prayer. God is actually going to send these disciples out into this harvest. The word has been sown, and he's now sending out to get responses or results from the word going out. Jesus is looking for a response. He's telling people who he is, and he wants people now to respond to that. He's sending his disciples all over to pull in the response. We're doing that same thing right now. The gospel is given. The gospel has been given today. 
the harvest has, is, is ready, are you responding in the right way? God is also saying he needs laborers, those who, 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 who believe in Christ, who are willing to help deal with, get the gospel out and bring those who need to respond to the gospel. There's work to be done. Are you willing to do it? In other words, in, in, in a sense of true faith, a contrast of faith is not just talking and hearing what needs to be done, but actually responding and doing what God wants us to do, to take the gospel out, to address individuals who need to hear the gospel and look for those who God is calling to himself, like Matthew was in this chapter, who followed Jesus. Now Matthew is going to go out and be sent out into this harvest. What about you? Are you willing to obey God? Are you willing to be a part of working in the harvest that he sent us? So harvest in your family. There's a harvest in your workplace. There's a harvest in your neighborhood. There's a harvest at the grocery store that you go to. There's a harvest wherever people gather that you are a part of, that God wants you to be a part of getting that gospel out and calling for a response to. God wants each and every believer. People wonder, why do we preach at church where people know and hear the gospel so that they might be the laborers to go out day to day, Monday through Saturday, to take that gospel out and to harvest it? All the preaching is not to come from the pulpit. It's to come from God's people. He says, pray to God to send forth laborers into this great harvest. Milwaukee is full and ripe. It's a harvest that needs the gospel. Your city, your neighborhood, your individual few blocks where you live or where you work or where you, where you go and back and get gas at and buy groceries, all that is part of God's harvest that he's sending you into. He says, be a gospel, be the gospel, and speak the gospel, and look for the reap, the harvesting that comes from that. Father, we thank you for your word today. We pray that you would speak to hearts today. You would challenge hearts not to just nod their heads and say, yeah, that's true, but to actually do, submit themselves to you. Say, Father, here I am. I need your son as my Savior. I am here to follow you, to do what you call me to do, to take this gospel out, to speak to others, to live before others, to challenge them to do as I do, to follow you. And Lord, for hearts who are responding that way, we say thank you. How will I know? Not by talk, but by action. By what they actually do. The change that you prompt them to make faithful living that you call them to, surrendered service that you call them to, active response that you call them to. Thank you for this response, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.